Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. Exodus 33, verse 18, all the way through chapter 34, verse 7. The goodness of God was actually the very first sermon I ever preached. I was a junior in college at Tulane, and we were going to do this uh, mini-conference type thing for college students, and we it was college students putting it together, and there were four of us who were going to preach, and they gave me the topic, the goodness of God, and I remember thinking, I'm way out of my depths doing this. Um, but it was something that the Lord used mightily in my own life. It was probably a terrible sermon, uh, but he used it mightily in my own life. So this is always a precious topic and theme and doctrine for me. Exodus 33, verse 18, all the way through chapter 34, verse 7. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went on to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Let's pray. Our Father, as we behold your glory seen here in, in the book of Exodus, we are asking Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that by your word and by your works, you would reveal yourself to us. 
And that as we see, as we see by hearing, that we would be more like you and less like our sinful selves. Father, we know this is a covenantal moment. And Father, we will either hear by grace or by works. Would you bring those who are trying their best by works, would you transfer them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. If you have ever been to my parents' house or maybe to the beach with us whenever my dad cooks a meal, particularly something involving fish, he will often, whenever he takes the first bite, he will often say, oh, man, it's just known that whenever he takes a bite, it's a good meal. And he's like, oh, come on. And that's probably where I get it from. So some of my students know. I love to say, come on now. When you taste something good, we often like to say, like my dad, oh, man. Or we like to say, mmm. You know, it's often what we like to call eating pizza. I told uh, Pete Hatton, who is a PCA minister in Edmond, I told him when he came to preach one time, I said, I was eating pizza the entire sermon. He said, what do you mean? I said, I kept saying, hmm, because it was good. We do that whenever we taste good food. And Psalm 34 verse 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. I hope we're going to be eating pizza this morning. When was the last time that you looked at the God of the Bible and said, Because that is who he is. He is good. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. That is our theme this morning. First, what is God's goodness? Let me bring you back to verse 18. Verse 18, Moses is asking the Lord, please show me your glory. The Lord responds, I will make all my goodness pass before you. In this context, it was two chapters earlier in Exodus 32. Remember when the people of Israel had rebelled against the Lord while Moses is on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments. Getting one of the commandments that said, do not make for yourself an image. And down in the valley, they're making the golden calf. They had broken covenant with God and Moses is pleading with God as the priest, as it were, the the type of priest interceding between God and man. And he's saying, Lord, please do not leave us, but rather show me your glory. And so God decides to show Moses his glory. But it's interesting as we read the text is that when God is showing His glory, He is preaching His glory. Did you notice that? The focus was more about God's words than about sight. You see, we see the glory of God when the gospel is preached. It's actually, this is this section of Scripture here is what Paul is thinking about in 2 Corinthians 3.18 when he says that when we behold the glory of Christ, we are transformed into the same image. But then the question is this, well, Paul, how do we behold the glory of Christ? 2 Corinthians 4, 4-6 says this, 
In their case, talking about unbelievers, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, here he goes on to say this. For what we proclaim, speaking words, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What in the world is Paul saying here? Here's what he's saying. If you want to see God's glory, you must hear the gospel preached. We see by hearing. As one person says, there is considerable truth that where the Greeks thought with the eye, Hebrews thought with the ear. This is because in Israel, the focus is upon the word of God, not the appearance of man and his world. We see God by hearing God's word proclaimed. That's why God's putting the emphasis on hearing. And what is he going to speak to Moses? He says, I'm going to make my what? Goodness pass before you. It is, excuse me, this Hebrew word tov. Goodness. It is God's moral excellence. It is something that is admirable. It is, it is something that is so worthy to be desired. It's that pizza where you say, mmm. And you should have your buddies next to you say, well, I want a slice of that. It is something desirable. I remember an old Hardee's commercial when there was a bunch of probably college age or young adult guys in one room and it was so loud. They're talking to each other. Maybe you remember this commercial. And then all of a sudden they get a bunch of Hardee's burgers and it goes quiet. And there's just a bunch of, mmm. And the whole advertisement was to say, see how good our food is. But see, here is the goodness, the infinite goodness of God. Now, when we think about God revealing himself to us, showing us his goodness, we need to remember that God is not the object of our worship in a way of this. It's not as if we put God down in a little Petri dish or whatever it is. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not a scientist. But we look at God and we say, now you stay right there. We will analyze you. That is not how theology works. Theology is God above us revealing himself to us saying, look at me. It is an act all of grace. For God merely to reveal himself here to Moses is an act of mercy and grace. So when we think about the object of our worship, we must take him at his word and his works. And if we don't, then we are creating our own God. John of Damascus, the 8th century theologian, said this, God revealed that which was to our prophet to know. But what we were unable to bear, he kept secret. With these things, let us be satisfied and let us abide by them, not removing the everlasting boundaries nor overpassing the divine tradition. Here's what John of Damascus is saying. What God has revealed is what we need. He's revealed it for our good. And if we don't have all the answers, 
and we don't need it yet. So let us take God at his word. You see, if theology, if theology is always an act of grace, then it means that we must be patient with people when they lack some understanding. We must be gracious with people, not sacrificing the truth, holding on to the truth, but being patient. Because theology is the most central part of your sanctification. And that takes the work of God. So as we think of God, we need to take him at his word. Now, when God says he's going to make his goodness pass before Moses, we need to remember this. That when God proclaims his goodness, we don't merely do this. Let me think about everything that is good in the world today. And everything that's good, let me cast out everything else that's evil. Let me just take everything that's good and just ball it all up and just multiply it to the infinite degree. And that must be God. God's goodness is so much greater. It is not just quantitatively more. It is qualitatively better. Here's the whole point. However good you think about God, it's never enough. So you see the point. We should never have a moment where we begin to doubt God's goodness. That's hard. We do. But the word of God is telling us that God is so infinitely good in his essence that he will never not be good. Amen. God is good all the time. Come on now, we're going we're gonna to have some give and take today. He's good. You see, when God passes by Moses, look at verse 6. Here's what he starts out with. <clears throat> Here is the, the sermon of the Lord, as it were. The Lord, the Lord. Now, notice how that's spelled. Is it spelled capital L and then lowercase O-R-D? How is it spelled? Look at it. It's spelled all caps. And that is the covenant name Yahweh. That's important because when God is saying Yahweh, Yahweh, he is showing Moses, I am the covenant keeping God. I have entered into relationship with you. I'm not waiting for you to come to me. I come to you. God proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh as Phil Riken has said, he is proclaiming that he is the God of creation and redemption. In other words, when God is proclaiming his goodness, saying, Yahweh, Yahweh, he is saying, I am a God who moves towards you. That's amazing. But he's not only a God who moves towards, he is also God. Look at that. Keep your Bibles open. The Lord, the Lord. What does it say next? A God. This is, maybe you've heard the Hebrew word El. God, meaning the totally transcendent being infinitely above and beyond us, the one true God, the one who created all things, the one who is the sovereign, the one who is worthy of all of our worship, the one who possesses utmost power. You see, we cannot say that God must either be too high or too near. He's both. He is transcendent and he is Imminent. You get problems if you say one or the other. You see, God being God, when we think about his goodness, 
It means that his goodness is not even measurable. Think about that. You can never exhaust the goodness of God because it is God's goodness and he is infinite. God's goodness should never be doubted. But rather, we should expect the utmost good from him and and we should interpret all things in light of his goodness. As he begins to further proclaim his goodness, he moves on. How does he describe himself? He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God, what? Merciful. What does he mean here? A God merciful, meaning that he is willing to show favor. It's actually, this word here is used of the tender love of a mother for her newborn child. That's been kind of a great picture for us the last two weeks. The tender love of a mother for her newborn child. This word for mercy, it stems from the Hebrew word for womb. So let's put it this way. How merciful is God for you and me? He is so merciful that he will take on flesh to go from the womb to the tomb. Amen. He will move towards us. When it says God is merciful, it's the same word used in Jonah 4.2 when Jonah is so angry at God for showing mercy to Nineveh. It's the same word used in Luke 6.36 in the Greek equivalent where, where Jesus says, Be merciful as your Father is merciful. And in this context, it's this. It's loving people who do not deserve it. Jesus says, Don't love people who love you. That's easy. Love the people who hate you. That is mercy. God says he is gracious. Gracious meaning that God pardons all our sins. But he doesn't just bring us back to square one. You know, let's say you were here in the depths of your sin and this would be neutral as it were. You were here and God's gracious so he just brings you neutral. No, no, no. There's no neutrality with God. He brings you out of your sins into favor with him. God is not satisfied to leave you neutral as it were. He brings you near to him. He deals with you in grace, not by your works. That's what Daniel says in Daniel 9 verse 18. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Never look at God and say, Give me what I deserve because you do not deserve anything good. You deserve his wrath. But thankfully, God does not deal with us based on our works, not if we're in the covenant of grace. You see, what makes God's grace so amazing is this. It literally cannot be grace if you earn it. If you earn it, it literally is no longer grace because the definition of grace is giving you what you do not deserve. You see the beauty in this, right? If you cannot earn God's grace, then when he gives it to you, you cannot lose it. Amen? That's pizza right there. God is gracious. He's also slow to anger 
Literally in the Hebrew, it says he's long of nose. Interesting. My Hebrew professor Miles Van Pelt used to say that uh, the opposite of this is that short snout, meaning that you're quick-tempered. Like a, a pig, he described it, where you're very quick to have outbursts of anger. God saying, no, 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 I'm not like that. I'm long of nose. I'm patient. This does not mean that God leaves people unpunished or that justice is undone, but rather it means that God does not rush to pour out his wrath upon sinners. He is not on a hairpin trigger with you. God does not abide by our cancel culture today. But rather, as 2 Peter 3, 9 says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. John Mackay, commentator, says about slow to anger. Slow to anger does not present the Lord as a frustrated deity who eventually loses patience and strikes out against those who have thwarted him. It rather acknowledges that the Lord is reluctant to act against his creation. Even when it is in rebellion against him, he waits long to give the sinner the opportunity to return in repentance. But he is not forgetful and he will not condone sin. At a time of his choosing, he will act decisively against it. My friends, if God is good, why are we so quick to burst out in anger against each other? God is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You see that next part there. This is his hesed love, his loyal love. This is God's dependability. It's the opposite of God being stingy. When God gives you grace and mercy and love, he does not just give you a cup size of this. It's almost like you go to Costco and they give you the only size you can buy, as it were, is the gigantic size. And you're like, I just need a little snack. When God gives you grace, he does not give you just barely enough. He gives you himself. He gives you all of it. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and when in doubt, when you need mercy and grace and forgiveness, it means you can depend on God for it. Amen? Do you need it? He hasn't. God is the type of God that when everyone abandons you, when countless others have let you down, God will never abandon you and he will never let you down. He's not like we are. He keeps his steadfast love to the thousandth generation. Now, contrast that with what comes later. It says that he will visit the iniquity and transgression and sins uh, of the fathers on the children and the children's children. Compare that to what we just read. God says, my steadfast love is not merely to the third and fourth generation, but to the thousandth generation. God is as it were, more trigger-happy to show grace and mercy and steadfast love. See, God says, my goodness is seen in that I am a God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, meaning He carries away our sin. See, this is the idea that we need to remember 
that in our day we often hear, well, I can't forgive myself. But if I can say this gently, you do not have the right to forgive yourself. But God does. And if it is enough for God, then it is enough for you. If God has said that I have forgiven you of your sins, then it is enough for you. Because it's enough for Him. God forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. You would say, why is He using three definitions? The whole point is to say that sin in all its totality, any form of rebellion that you can imagine, anything that your mind is going to right now, God is saying, that is what I forgive. God is telling you, I am so good that you can literally bring anything to me and find forgiveness. That's pizza right there. Yet at the same time, he is just. He will by no means clear the guilty. He never ignores sin. He doesn't downplay sin. He doesn't water down sin. All sin will be righteously and justly judged. The wages of sin is death, and God will not just simply ignore it. It is either Christ or it is you. But if it is Christ, then once again, it's enough. If God in his infinite goodness sent Christ to the cross for you, and he says, Christ is enough. Don't ever add anything to this. Rest in that. If it's enough for God, my friend, it is enough for you. You can rest in that. He is just. He will exact punishment. And he will either bring justice upon the unjust either in this life or he will do it in the next. He's also wrathful. You see, even this is part of God's goodness. We often don't like to think about his wrath as being good. But here's the thing. If God loves holiness, he must punish unholiness. God, being wrathful, it means to impose an unpleasant state upon those who deserve it. Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. As Numbers 32.23 says, Be sure that your sin will find you out. Your sin will find you out. God will not sacrifice his goodness. If for some possible way God could sacrifice his goodness, he would not be God. Your sin will find you out. And that is for the glory of God's goodness. And once again, my friend, Christ. Or you. But if Christ is enough, and if in God's goodness He says, Yes, the Son of God who took on flesh, who took your place, He alone is enough for you, my friends, it's good to rest in that. Amen? That is God describing His goodness. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. But where do we see God's goodness? Well, we see God's goodness in the fact that God gives and God condemns and God forgives. He gives 
He condemns and he forgives. God gives. God is a giving God. He created all things, but he did not have to. God wasn't lonely, just starving for attention, bored. He created out of an overflow of his joy. Colossians 1.16 said, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. God created all things. He did not just evolve into being. God is the creator. You want to see God's goodness in creation? Have you ever looked at an onion before? Have you ever thought about the versatility of an onion? You can saute it. You can caramelize it. You can fry it. You can put it on tacos, burgers. You can put it in gumbo or any sort of stew. An onion is amazing. And when you cook with an onion, you should be reminded that God is good. Think about potatoes. You can bake a potato. You can twice bake a potato. You can mash it up. You can make french fries and have them late at night when nothing else will hit the spot but french fries. You can have waffle fries and hash browns and and gnocchi gnocchi or however you say it and chips and bacon and potato soup. Guys, God created the potato. Is it too small of a thing to look at that and say, wow. God has created every blade of grass, every fly that flies, every ant that crawls, and even the mountains that soar among the clouds for us to say, he is a good God. Amen. You see his glory in all of creation. You also see his glory in his common grace for his people. Matthew 5, 45 says, for he makes his son rise on the evil and the good. Every morning, the sun rises upon the wicked and the righteous, those in the covenant of grace and the covenant of works. He gives them food. He gives them breath. He gives them taste buds to taste the different types of potatoes. Have you ever thought about that? Do you actually, maybe in some sense you can't you correct me, but for the most part, do you have to have taste buds to survive? Did God have to do that? No. He could have just taken away taste and just, you know, just munch down and just, you know, just be nutrients to my body and that's it. Have you ever thought about how amazing food is to sit there and say, "Mm." and dear unbeliever, that you would dare to come to the conclusion, say that there is no God or that if there is a God, he is not good. God helps us, or excuse me, doesn't help us. He enables us to see color, to hear children laugh to study complex ideas, to to make beautiful noises come out of our mouths when we sing, or maybe just they're joyful noises but not joyful to hear. He enables people to contribute to the good of society. He enables people to order and structure government, for doctors to find cures for diseases, lawyers to defend people, chefs to prepare delicious dinners. Look at all the things in creation that God is giving to the wicked and to the righteous. There's no shortage. But God, you might ask the question, 
What about the evil in the world? See, and this might be a very personal question for you because maybe the, the question about if God is good is not just an intellectual question. It's a very personal question. And maybe you've experienced someone close to you who's died or maybe you or someone else has gotten ill or just some form of loss. But James 1.13 says, when, Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. If God cannot be tempted with evil, then there is no evil within God. So how do you answer about the evil in the world? We see the evil in the world, how it came into our world in Genesis 3. The problem's us. The problem is our sin and the, and the effects of the sin and God's just and holy and righteous curse upon our sin, what we deserve. But it is not him who is evil. The problem actually is us. And that leads into our second point under this heading. That God's goodness is seen in the fact that God condemns what is not good. Proverbs 12 to 12 two says a good man will obtain favor from the Lord, but he will condemn a man who desired or who devised evil. See, actually, one of the biggest problems about God's goodness for us is the fact that we are not. The problem is us. Our heads, hearts and hands are affected by the fall and our sin and in depravity. Romans 3, 10 through 11 says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. We don't even think rightly. Romans 3, 18 says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And that's very interesting because Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But we don't even have the fear of the Lord outside of Christ. Ephesians 4.18 says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. Some people might say, well, I'm just using reason or I'm just a, 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 a non-biased observer. No, you're not. Sin has affected the way we think. Sin has affected our hearts. Genesis 6 verse 5 says the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Jesus says in Matthew 15 that it is actually all these evil things like sexual immorality, theft, slander, false witness, adultery, murder, evil thoughts come out of the heart. The problem is us. The things that overflow out of the heart, we do with our hands. Romans 3.12 says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The goodness of God is a problem for us. Unless you come to Jesus Christ. Because the goodness of God, in His wrath, and His justice, when the sins of God's people were transferred onto Christ, God treated His Son like the worst of sinners ever. And He poured it out upon Him. And that was good. 
the sin must be punished. And what is amazing about that is that if our sins were transferred to him, then his righteousness is transferred to us. And if that is enough for God, it's enough for you. Amen? 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My friends, this is what this means. Let's reverse this. That if you are a Christian, and when you come to God and you confess your sins, then God would be unfaithful and unjust to not forgive you of your sins. Did you hear that? If you are in Jesus Christ, he is faithful and he is righteous to look at all your sins and say, forgive him. He would be unfaithful and unrighteous to say, no, and say, you need to also do this. Jesus is not quite enough for you. That's absurd. But you can come to Jesus Christ and find forgiveness. God is God in Psalm 103, verse 12, where he, he says that as far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our sins from us. It's amazing. God is seen in his goodness in that, that he gives for his people. He also condemns wickedness, but he forgives those who are in Jesus Christ. Jerry Bridges has a great quote. He says, we tend to drag up our old sins and that we tend to live under a vague sense of guilt. We are not nearly as vigorous in appropriating God's forgiveness as he is in extending it. In other words, this. We are less, or put it this way. We have less desire to believe in God's forgiveness than God desires to give it. God is more eager to forgive you than you are to believe that you are forgiven. You can never think too highly about that. Amen? That's pizza. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. That's where we see his goodness. Now, how should we live in response to it? First, if God is good, run to Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's goodness embodied. Do you have sins? Bring them to Jesus. John Bunyan says, no child of God sins to such a degree that he is incapable of finding forgiveness. Don't hold back. Don't come up with your own strategy. Run to Jesus Christ now and you will find mercy and forgiveness. Why? Because he's good. Run to Jesus. Stay with Jesus. Walk with Jesus. Limp with Jesus. Study Jesus. Speak to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Depend on Jesus. Trust Jesus. Look to Jesus. Savor Jesus because he is good. That's what we do. If God is good, my friends, enjoy creation. How many times do we slow down to enjoy a freshly baked cookie? How often do we slow down versus scarfing down? How much of our technology, social media, and entertainment is keeping us from enjoying God's good creation? You see, supposedly St. Augustine said this, God is always trying to give good things to us, but our hands are too full to receive them. But we could put it this way, our hands are too full of our phones to notice them. 
enjoy creation because God is good. If God is good, trust his provision. God's very name is Jehovah Jireh, meaning Yahweh will provide. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. J.C. Ryle says, Nothing, whatever, whether great or small, can happen to a believer without God's ordering and permission. There is no such thing as chance, luck, or accident in the Christian's journey through this world. All is arranged and appointed by God, and all things are working together for the believer's good. Trust in his provision. Also, if God is good, give thanksgiving to him. Psalm 107 verse 1 says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. But my friends, if you're going to actually think about what to thank God for, you need to slow down. And once again, how often does our binging Netflix and constantly running on the the treadmill of our phones, how often does that enable us to thank God? In a world where we're constantly drowning in bad news, we need to slow down to take time to see that God is at work. If God is good, live in holiness Leviticus 11.44 says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy because I am holy. If God is good, battle against unwanted thoughts. You need to ask yourself when you're being hounded with these unwanted thoughts, these condemning thoughts, you need to ask yourself how much of a good God is in those thoughts. Battle against those unwanted thoughts. See if they match up with God's goodness for you in Jesus Christ. As one author put it, you ask yourself some questions about these thoughts. Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it appropriate? Also, is it a complete thought? Because if God is good, he will lead you to his gracious truth. If God is good, promote goodness. We hear the saying a lot today of be the change you wish to see in the world. And there's some truth to that, but it's missing something. Because you cannot be the change unless God changes you. You must be born again. Because if you are not born again, the only change you will bring is wicked change. But those who are in Christ, who are born again... If God is good, promote the goodness of God. Uphold his law. Uphold his ethics. Uphold his gracious treatment of us. If God is good, fear hell. He will give sinners what they deserve. He will not let any sin go unpunished. And dear unbeliever, What a horror it is to forsake such a good God who has given us all these things. To forsake his gift of his son on the cross for you. What do you think? What do you think will happen if for your whole life you've said no to him and you've heard the gospel even today. And God has said my son is enough for you and you say no. What do you think will happen? But oh, if you run to Jesus Christ, imagine how amazing heaven will be. Imagine how amazing just the world of heaven will be. 
A world without sin, a world of eternal goodness, a world where we're finally able to be without sin and enjoy God and his infinite goodness forever. Do you want to know why in the book of Revelation it describes heaven? It says it's like this, it's like this, because its goodness so surpasses our thoughts. My friends, if you are in Jesus Christ, you have no idea what goodness awaits you. Praise God. Come on now. That's pizza right there. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. One of God's faithful missionaries, Alan Gardner, experienced many physical difficulties and hardships throughout his service to the Lord Jesus Christ. But despite his troubles, he said, while God gives me strength, failure will not daunt me. And in 1851, at the age of 57, he died of disease and starvation while serving on the Picton Island at the southern tip of South America. When his body was found, his diary lay nearby. It bore the record of hunger, thirst, wounds, and loneliness. But the last entry in this little book showed the struggle of his shaking hand as he tried to write legibly. But it read this, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. He is good. And that is a God you can run to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to see your goodness by hearing your gospel. And as we hear that you would give us faith, faith that would help us behold you in your glory to bow down and worship you. And to live in light of who you are. Once again, we ask, make us less like our sinful selves and more like you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.